From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our brand new JLI course, Beyond Right. This course is all about Jewish law and the ethical considerations that drive the law. I'm going to be speaking a lot about that tonight. How, what is the interplay between law and ethics, ethics? But just know that that is what we are going to cover. I want to, before we get started, I want to give a special thank you to our generous core sponsors, Howard Feinsand, Steve Horowitz, Joy Maxey, Amir Robbins. Thank you so much for helping bring this course to our community and to the world at large. Thank you very much. So they tell a story about a couple, actually a family, the Epstein family from New York. The Epstein family from New York is visiting the Holy Land, visiting Israel. And the dad is driving, and he pulls into a crowded parking lot in Tel Aviv. Tons of cars, and he sees a police officer standing there. And he says to the police officer, is it okay to park here? And the police officer says, no, it's not okay to park here. Can't you see the no parking sign? So the fellow says, what about all the other cars in here? Police officer answers, oh, them? They didn't ask. My friends, my friends, this is how life sometimes works. This is how it works sometimes in life, where as menfrecht is treif. You ever hear that one? If you ask questions, then uh, suddenly, right, you might, uh, you might find out that it's, the answer is no. But what we're going to look at tonight is situations where no's are sometimes yeses, yeses are sometimes no's, the interplay between law and ethics, as you will see. I want to start, though, with a quick poll question. And you can, I want everyone to jump in. Um, I would like everyone to jump in on this and share what they believe to be the answer. It's okay, there's no wrong answer, but there is a right answer. Okay, so here's my question. You ready? Poll question. In yeshiva, in a Jewish yeshiva, Jewish school, what do you think is the most studied book? What book gets the most study in a Jewish school, in a yeshiva, unmute and jump in. I want to hear answers. Go. What book, what Jewish book is studied the most in yeshiva? Gemara. Gemara. Okay, what else? What else do you think? Gemara, by the way, is the, is the Talmud. Torah. Okay, good. So we have Torah, i.e., like, let's say, five books of Moses or Scripture. We have Talmud. What else? What else do you believe is studied, is the most studied book in yeshiva, most studied Jewish book in yeshiva? Comics? What is it? I was joking. I said comics. Oh, the old slip the comics into the Talmud uh, scenario. Yeah, well, that may happen on occasion, back in the day. Um, all right, so look. The first answer's got it correct. The answer is, without a doubt, the most 
studied book in your Jewish text in yeshiva is without question the Talmud. Um, it's by a landslide. In fact, in many yeshivot, the Talmud is studied at least, if not more, than six hours every single day. In Chabad yeshivas, it, the rule is two-thirds, one-third, which means two-thirds of the day you study Talmud, one-third of the day you study Hasidic philosophy, so, which means six hours of Talmud to, how's my math over here, to three hours of Hasidic philosophy. Does that make one-third and two-thirds? I think so. All right, for a total of nine hours. Back to our story, though. The question is why. My question on my question, ah, you see what I did there? I asked you what is the most often studied book, most often studied book in, in Yeshiva, the answer is Talmud. Now my follow-up question is, why Talmud? The Talmud is a book devoted exclusively, or almost exclusively, to Jewish law. So here's my question. Are Yeshiva students banking on a career in ancient Jewish law revival? Like, what's the, what's the agenda? What's the agenda with the Talmud, right? Is it really critical to know what happens when two people walk into a Jewish court of law holding onto a garment, each one claiming to have found the first? Is that really super critical for their lives? Do they need to know what the law is if uh, my ox gores your ox? Gores, like G-O-R-E-S, like ox on ox violence. Is that really super critical to know? Let me put it another way. If and when the garment case or the ox case comes up, can't we just look in the books and find the answer? We have to study this for six hours a day? Study Talmud, all the nuances of ancient law, ancient Jewish law that may or may not have any modern relevance? What's the point? It seems like, perhaps, a profound waste of time. Why have we spent so much time as a people over the centuries, literally over the centuries, studying, discussing, debating the Talmud and Jewish law hours and hours each day. Now, the simple answer, which is a true answer also, the simple answer is, well, studying Talmud is a part of studying Torah because the Talmud explains Torah. Torah contains the 630 commandments, and they're elaborated on and expounded upon in the Talmud. So it's part of the mitzvah of Torah study. So it's a mitzvah, so you can't go wrong with studying it. And while that's true, it still doesn't explain the obsession with Talmud. So some like to say that Talmud sharpens the mind, sharpens the mind like nothing else. And if you've studied Talmud, then you know that to be true. Um, if you want to become wise, clever, if you want to learn how to learn, if you want to develop critical thinking skills, if you want to practice how to disagree without being disagreeable, which, by the way, would be a great title for a new book. Anyway, how to disagree without being disagreeable with the other, how to have a difference of opinion without fighting, is what I'm trying to say. So that is all found in the Talmud. You can learn all those skills from the Talmud. And all of this is true and speaks of the value of Talmud study, but there is perhaps, an even deeper truth. And that is that studying Talmud and Jewish law gives us an unparalleled glimpse inside the values of Judaism. I'll say that again. When you study the Talmud, when you study Jewish law, you get an unparalleled glimpse inside the values that power Judaism. Because it's the values that always drive the laws. Laws are built 
on values. Show me a society's laws and I'll show you what they value. Friends, this course is all about studying the laws of Judaism in order to extract and discover the values of Judaism. In each of these six lessons, over the next six weeks, we're going to tackle one area of the law. And we'll do a bit of comparison, we'll compare and contrast. We'll look at how U.S. law, which we may, I may alternatively call secular law, in other words, not Jewish religious law, we'll, we'll see how U.S. law looks at the case or the cases, and then we'll see what Jewish law has to say about it. And in addition to learning uh, a lot of, of fascinating wisdom from the nuances of the case, above and beyond all of that, we're going to see how Jewish law deals with these cases being driven by Jewish beliefs, values, ethics, and morality. We'll discover in real time how the ethical bedrock of Judaism shapes and guides the law. And, of course, the payoff is we're going to learn how these values, these core Jewish values as expressed in case law, can radically enhance our lives today and make us more of a mensch, a better, better human beings, and create a better world for ourselves. And we'll see that already from tonight in lesson number one. So, over the next six weeks... We are going to encounter Jewish values, such as letting go to do right by another, recognizing human potential, taking responsibility for each other, respecting another's agency, valuing the relationship between humans and objects. And finally, we're going to be exploring the value of judging others kindly. These are, these are just some of the powerful Jewish values that drive Jewish law and all will find expression in the cases that we study and explore in this course. In each lesson, as I said before, we're going to compare and contrast U.S. and Jewish law and seek to understand the radical foundation upon which Jewish law rests. The cases will be captivating. The conversations will be exhilarating. The lessons will be inspiring. I am so glad that you're with me together on this journey. So let's begin. So we start with a premise, the premise I've already stated, that is that every system of law arises from a value system. Laws do not originate in a vacuum. Rather, laws, are, laws rise up from a value system. So let's explore an example of this in U.S. law. And I, ask, I turn to you once again with an open question, i.e. a question for everybody. You can unmute yourself right now in preparation for the question. Name a freedom, name a freedom that is enshrined in U.S. law. Name one freedom that is enshrined in U.S. law. Go, jump in. Religion. Religion, what else? Speech. Speech. Assembly. Speech, assembly, good. What else? Keep and bear, bear, bear arms. Keep and bear arms, okay, good. What else? Voting. Voting, Good. All right, we have a good selection. We have a good selection. I want to speak about, let's focus on, I think, one of the first two, the two of the first ones that were mentioned, speech, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. These are so, these are central, these freedoms are central to U.S. law enshrined in the First Amendment. 
Um, here's my question. My question is, why are they so central in U.S. law? Why are they so important? Why were they enshrined in the First Amendment? And the answer is, simply, you need to understand what was going on in and around 1791 when the First Amendment was drafted. You need to know what was going on historically. What was happening in our country in 1791? And in short, here's a very short history lesson, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. In 1791, that's a little bit after that time, but in and around that time, the United States, right, was formed and had been formed as a breakaway from England. Yes, correct? It was a breakaway from England. We fought for our independence. Ultimately, we seized our own destiny and we made a unilateral declaration of independence saying, essentially, na 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 say hey hey goodbye i think that's the that those are the lyrics and there's a tune associated with that but essentially the united states said to to to, to britain zeigesund which is yiddish for see you later or be well and uh you know that's it we're on our own see you later uh, um, declaration of independence we said, that's it we're out we're taking our own sovereignty and our own agency and that's it no foreign government is going to hold on to us or interfere with us in any way. The entire Declaration of Independence is based on and founded upon autonomy. The notion of freedom, agency, autonomy, rights, etc. No surprise then that U.S. law enshrines individual autonomous freedom of speech and religion. In other words, no one will tell us what we can say or how we can pray. Are you with me on this? In other words, the whole foundation of the United States of America is freedom, liberty, uh, individual autonomy. It's about breaking out of the tethers that, that otherwise were holding us down. And that's enshrined for the individual, individual rights, freedom, and autonomy. So in the First Amendment, we're granted freedom of speech. You can say of course, with some limitations, but freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the idea of, of, of not being oppressed by a, by a government or a foreign entity, um, not being oppressed, but rather having that freedom. No one will tell us what we can say, how we can pray, stay out. These values that emerged were a direct result of what was happening at the time. In other words, the laws followed the values. The value was personal freedom and autonomy or national freedom and autonomy, but the notion of freedom and autonomy and agency, and that's enshrined in the law. The point is, every system of law is based on an underlying value system. Sometimes it's more visible, sometimes less, but it's always there. There's always a value system that underpins it. The same is true of Judaism. Judaism also contains an ethical value system as well as a legal system, and the two are related. Jewish law is based on Jewish values. When we learn the law, we can discover the dazzling bedrock of ethics and values. So what are the underlying values of Judaism? We've seen that in the United States, there's this thread, there's this uh, streak of autonomy and agency and freedom and individuality. Sure, but what about Judaism? So let's find out and we'll find out by comparing and contrasting 
the role of secular law with the role of Jewish law. So as we've just discussed, U.S. law enshrines personal freedom as essential. But it's not just the United States. Take a look at text one. We're going to jump into the textbook. I will put up on the screen uh, for ease of, uh, of, of perusal. But if you have a book, open it up as well. Pay a text number one. Take a look. We're going to read now the uh, an excerpt from the Declaration of the Rights of Man. That's what it's called, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which was a human rights document um, uh, uh, coming from the French Revolution. Okay, take a look at this. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And let's ask, who are we asking to read? Give me a moment. Um, Sarah, are you up to reading? Text number one? Sure. Awesome. Okay. It consists in the freedom to do everything which injures no one else. Hence, the exercise of the natural rights of each man has no limits except those which assure to the other members of the society the enjoyment of the same rights. These limits can only be determined by law. Law can only prohibit such actions as are hurtful to society. Nothing may be prevented which is not forbidden by law, and no one may be forced to do anything not provided for by law. Perfect. Okay, so it's very important to understand what this, what this, um, uh, this declaration is saying. And this is not only from the French, from the era of the French Revolution. This is uh, a, a document that had a major impact on developing the very concept of freedom and democracy in Europe and beyond. So this is a very key document. And what does it say? Well, among other things, and I'm, I'm keeping it up on the screen so you can you know, keep on looking at it, but among other things, it speaks volumes about the purpose and place of the law as seen through the lens of democracy. The law is not intended, as this text clearly uh, illustrates, this, the law is not intended to tell people what to do. People should be deciding what to do on their own. That's liberty, right? Liberty consists in the freedom to do everything which injures no one else. Okay, there's a little caveat there, which injures no one else, but the point is, the starting point is, People should ideally be doing whatever they want. That's the true definition of liberty. What the law does and the place of law in democracy is to ensure that in the process of everybody doing what they want, no one is infringing upon the rights and liberties of the other guy. Are you with me on that? In other words, the starting point is rights, personal rights, Personal freedom, personal autonomy. That's the starting point. The starting point is you live your life. I'm not going to you live your life. How? However you want. But, with a caveat, but if the way that you want to live your life is objectively infringing on someone else's right to live their life, now we have to, now we have to figure that out. Now we're going to have to get involved. The law is going to say, okay, you, have, you can do what you want up until this point, past this point. Now we, we're going to say it's harming someone else or society at large. You with me on this? But the premise is personal freedom and autonomy. The exception is where it's infringing on someone else. Therefore, the law comes and tells you essentially what not to do. 
right? The law is more, is, is more of a, police, a policing of what not to do because you're going to infringe on someone else than telling you what actually to do. Um, yes. The, if you read this carefully, especially where it says nothing may be prevented, which is not forbidden by law, and no one, no one may be forced to do anything not provided for by law. This is removing power from the monarchy and placing power in the people's hands. Excellent. Excellent. Perfect. Beautiful point. Exactly. Coming from a monarchy, they took the approach, let's give the power to the people. Right? French Revolution, baby. What is it? Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité. Right? It's... Uh, I think that was the motto of the three musketeers or something like that. I'm kidding. Um, the point is, yeah, that you're right. Coming from monarchy, we're going the other way. No central power should have the power. It's the, it's the individual rights. So, and, and to me, and I put, this, put the, put the uh, text back up, law can only prohibit such actions as are hurtful to society. In other words, outside of that... Nothing may be prevented which is not forbidden by law, and no one may be forced to do anything not provided for by law, and the law is only, getting, is only going to get involved if it's actually going to be hurtful for others in the society. Um, but otherwise, you live your life. We are not going to get involved. That is the ideal framework or the ideal space of the law in this conception of democracy or Western democracy. The conception of law is not telling you what to do, not micromanaging your life. You micromanage your life. You take control of your life. You have agency. You do whatever you want. Live your life, right? If and when it's going to pose a problem to others, okay, now the, now the law has to step in and, uh, and, and, and mediate or figure this out. But excellent, it's coming from, as I said, right, as, and I mentioned before this as well, it, everything arises from a value system, and values are often based on context. So historically then, they, they had been under, under a monarchy that they didn't like, that they were re literally revolting against, right? Hence the name French Revolution. Um, and, uh, and because of that, right, because of that, they wanted to go the other way, liberty. Same thing with the United States. The United States wanted to get out of the clutches of the British and out, out of the clutches of, uh, of, of that type of rule. And so it's all about the personal freedom. That is the, the, one of the defining features of a Western democracy vis-a-vis -vis liberty and law. So, in other words, in this system, if everybody's living their life the way they want to live, not infringing on anyone else, the law would actually say and do relatively little. It wouldn't do much. And that would actually be the ideal in this model, which we'll call henceforth the secular model. It's not only U.S., it's also, we saw this in this French document, we'll, we'll call it secular model, i.e. a non-Jewish, non-Torah-based model. Everyone living their own lives as they wish, expressing full agency and autonomy. It's only in a non-ideal world where people are infringing upon each other that you need the law, that you need the law to step in and, uh, and make sure things are kosher. All right, Jewish law. Let's compare and contrast. Jewish law is very different. All of what we said up until now, that's all secular law. Jewish law, super different and because it serves a, a completely different purpose and objective. Remember, the law is driven by a value system, and the values are driven by objectives. What is the objective of secular law? Leave everybody alone, more or less unless you have to get involved. What is the objective of Jewish law? Very, very different. 
Now, what, what that is, I will explain in a moment. But the first clue that we have as to the difference between Jewish law and secular law or other forms of law is in the book, the biblical book of Exodus. Shortly after the story of the revelation at Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments, Shortly after that, in fact, in the next Torah portion, known as the next parsha, the next Torah portion, right after we read about the revelation at Sinai, God begins instructing Moses regarding civil law. The Torah portion is called Mishpatim. It's my Bar Mitzvah Torah portion, so I know it well. God begins instructing Moses and the Jewish people regarding civil law, interpersonal civil law, which immediately evokes the question, what is going on over here? Why is God, why is the Bible, why is the Torah talking about civil law? Ritual law, I understand. Religious law makes sense. If God wants to tell us how to pray, sure. If God wants to tell us um, about kosher and about Shabbat and about mezuzah and tefillin and Rosh Hashanah and Passover, sure. But civil law, can't we figure that out? Right? Can't we uh, just work that out ourselves? Haven't societies created their own laws since time immemorial? Why does God feel the need to get involved in civil, in areas of civil law? All right, so to understand this, let's read the next text. This is text number two, and I'm going to ask Mark. Mark, please read text two. I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is from the Abarbanel. Take it away. Every human society requires laws. What is the advantage of God's law, Torah laws over the legal systems set up by other nations? Why does the verse state that these are the laws you shall set before them, thereby telling us that these laws are a unique divine system exclusively given to us by God? The reason for this is that the divine laws contain elements absent from other legal systems. God's laws are based on the principles of compassion and goodness. So this line, this last line right there, that is the core of today's class. And that is the core of what we are going to explore over the next 60 minutes. God's laws are based on the principles of compassion and goodness. And the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean that other laws are not compassionate and not good? That seems very presumptuous. That seems very judgy. What, other laws are fundamentally corrupt and evil and only God's laws are compassionate and good? That's not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is so much deeper than what meets the eye. What he's saying essentially is as follows. Secular law is concerned with protecting People's rights. That's what we described before. Secular law, U.S. law, we saw that document from the French Revolution. Western democracy, secular law, we're using those interchangeably, is concerned primarily with protecting people's individual rights, even when the law steps in. Why does the law step in? Because this guy is infringing on that guy's rights. In other words, we're trying to protect the other guy from being infringed upon which means that what is enshrined, what's on the throne, if you will, of U.S. law, secular law, it's individual rights. Whereas Jewish law, by stark contrast, is less concerned with protecting people's rights 
and more concerned with, wait for it, people doing right. Jewish law is not as concerned with protecting rights as it is with people doing the right thing. And there's a major difference between those two concepts. Secular law doesn't concern itself with you and I acting like a mensch. Do what you want, says secular law, just don't bump into the other guy. Don't hurt the other guy. But Jewish law is radically different. Jewish law, authored by God, the creator of mankind, is concerned with our personal well-being. That we don't hurt each other is a given. Obviously, we're not going to hurt each other. The real question and the real differentiator between the two systems of law is, will we actually actively help each other? Not if we're going to hurt each other. Of course, we're not even in, 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 in U.S. law and secular law, you can't hurt each other. We can't hurt each other either. That's a similarity. Where is the differentiation when it comes to Jewish law? Jewish law encourages us and mandates us not just not to hurt the other, but to actively help each other. Jewish law is insistent that we extend ourselves to help the other because that's the right thing to do. We'll see this in black and white from a verse in Deuteronomy. I'm going to put up on my screen. Let's ask, let's see who do we have here. Let us ask Dr. Maxi, please read. The next text, which is text number three from Deuteronomy. Diligently observe God's commandments that he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in God's eyes. Thank you. And there's a beautiful, we're going to explore this in greater depth a, a little bit later on in the lesson. But for right now, let's just focus on the last, ver the last sentence of that, well, it's actually two verses, the last sentence in this reading. Do what is right and good in God's eyes. Do what's right and good means, it's not only about, it's not about personal autonomy. Personal autonomy means I can do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting the other guy. This is a higher standard. This is like Hebrew National hot dogs. This is answering to a higher standard, higher authority. This is not just not hurting the other guy. This is actually doing what's right and good. I want to give you a framework to help understand this. And I'm going to use one of my favorite analogies, or favorite categories of analogies, which is sports analogies. I love sports analogies. So what, what month are we in? We are in May, which means we're a little bit we're a little bit far from football season, so let's talk about basketball. Basketball playoffs are going on right now. Do you know this? Yeah. Do you know who's not in the playoffs currently? Your Atlanta Hawks. Just saying. Just saying. It's, uh, it's sad because it would be great if they were, but they aren't. So it is what it is. So basketball playoffs. By the way, what do you call somebody who, who jumps up and runs back and forth screaming, and then sits down and cries. An NBA coach in the playoffs. But anyway, uh, be that as it may, here's, uh, here's, the here's the point about basketball. Think about, I don't know, don't judge the jokes. Think about um, the difference between a referee and a coach. Stay with me with this, okay? Stay with me. The difference between a, re a referee and a coach. Imagine 
before the game begins. Playoff game, players are on the court, and the officials, the referees, are speaking to the players. What might their message be to the players? What are the officials, what are the referees, what is their interest with the players? Not that dude a few years ago that was betting on the game. Not that guy, right? We know that guy. I forgot his name. Whatever. Um, yeah, sorry. I cut somebody off. Jump back in. Play by the rules. Oh, play by the rules. Excellent. Play by the rules, which means? It was Pete Rose. No, what, yeah, Pete Rose also. Yeah, he's baseball. But there was a basketball referee who was, had my, yeah, it's a whole scandal. Anyway, he's an interesting, interesting character. But yes, Pete Rose for sure. Um, so the official, the referee would say, right, would say, guys, play a fair game, right? No fouling, no, don't be aggressive. I mean, you can't not foul, but whatever. Like, don't be aggressive, don't hurt the other guy, play fairly. There you go. That's the, that's the job of the ref. And what's the coach going to say? Win the game. Win the game. Now, the coach is not going to say knock the other guy out because, I mean, unless – I, okay. Any um, – The coach is also going to encourage you to do your best. Good. Excellent. But I was off on a tangent in my head. Sean Payton or not Sean Payton, the um, – remember New Orleans? Remember the, uh, the Saints a few years ago? The headhunting scandal? Who remembered? All right. I don't want to do a deep dive in, uh, in sports um, a scandal history. Because we can go to Flakegate, we can go a lot of different places with this, but we're going to bring it back to the coach. What does the coach say before the game? The coach wants, whatever the, the language is, the coach is going to hype up the players. The coach wants the players to play the best game possible and to win, to excel. I think that many of us have a notion about God and Torah that is unfortunately incorrect. We think of God as a ref, and the Torah as a rule book. God is not a ref, and the Torah is not a rule book. God is a coach, and the Torah is a playbook. I'll say that again. God is not a coach, sorry, God is not a referee, and the Torah is not a rule book. Rather, God is a coach, and the Torah, Jewish law, is the, is the playbook. God is not telling us, oh, you don't hurt that person. Don't. God is instructing us. That's also in Torah. That's not the primary intention of Torah. The primary intention of Torah and Jewish law is to guide us, is to instruct us, is to coach us, dare I say, how to be the best human being we can be. The most, and I'm going to use some non-accurate language here, how we can be the menschiest mensch we can possibly be. You know what a mensch is? A good person, right? A good human being. A mensch. Yeah, a good person. Torah, Jewish law, is telling us how to be a good person. Do what's right and good in the eyes of God. God wants us to be good people, to be kind people. And this is, I'm going to put this back on the screen, the Abar Benel. Um, the Abar Benel. Text number two that we read before, he says that the reason why God gives us civil law is because the divine laws contain elements absent from other legal systems. God's laws are based on the principles of compassion and goodness. And I said before, what does that mean? 
Other laws are corrupt and evil? No. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the intention of God's laws are not just to referee society, but to instill and encourage and guide us in the ways of compassion and goodness. U.S. law, with all due respect, does not in, is not intended to make us good people. It's not intended to make us moral, ethical, kind people. Show me a law in, in U.S. law that mandates kindness. Doesn't exist. That mandates kindness? It forbids harm. Sure. We spoke about that at length before. But mandates kindness? Show me the money and or law in U.S. law that mandates kindness? Lahadam. Never happened. Jewish law? Torah law? Do what's right and good in the eyes of God, which, as we'll see soon, means a lot of things. So, I'm going to pause here for a moment. I did a, I've done a lot of talking. And I'll do more talking, don't worry. But I, I've done a lot of talking, but I just want to summarize what I hope so far is the point. I want to distill everything down into an akuda, into a point, or a few points. Okay, quick, quick summary. Number one, law is built and driven by a foundation of values. U.S. law or secular law is driven by U.S. or secular values. Jewish law is driven by Jewish values. What are some of the dominant values in secular law? Personal freedom, personal autonomy. Therefore, the law enshrines the right of free speech, the right freedom of religion. It enshrines rights. The law pretty much intends to only get involved if you're going to infringe on someone else's rights. The law says, no, you can't do that. It's protecting rights of the individual. Jewish law is not about rights. It's about doing what's right. It's about encouraging us, guiding us, teaching us what it means to be a mensch. And therefore, it's a completely different system. It will, as we'll see tonight, mandate acts of kindness, mandate generosity in some of the most surprising ways, which we're going to explore tonight. This, and that was the summary, summary complete. This will explain the following beautiful text from the previous Rebbe. Let's do this inside. Um, let's ask Susan, will you please read the next text? Give me a second till I pull this up on the screen. The next text is text number four. There are two types of laws, laws that create life and be laws created by life. Human laws are created by life. God's Torah is a divine law that creates life. Thank you. I'm going to keep this up. It's very poetic. <clears throat> I mean, it's, I'm reading it as poetic. It packs a big punch. Such a beautiful idea. Two types of laws. We're going to start with B first. Laws created by life. That refers to human laws created by people, essentially, to govern people. Uh-oh. People, people can't be left to their own devices. Look, they're hurting each other. All right, we've got to create a law. It's almost a responsive law. It's a law that says, uh-oh, someone's harming someone else. Let's put an end to this. Versus A is laws that create life. Laws designed to create, to form, to fashion, to mold, to guide life itself. Torah 
God's law, God's Torah is the divine law that creates life. In other words, the Torah is divine law. Jewish law is divine law with the intention to guide and mold good, kind, ethical, compassionate behavior. It's a law that creates life. It's an instruction, instruction manual for better living. Something that cannot be said necessarily about other systems of law. Other systems of law are primarily intended make sure people don't hurt each other. Jewish law, forget about hurting each other. How can we help each other? How can we help each other? Which is why in Jewish law we find so many interesting, interesting laws that you would never find anywhere else, which we will see tonight. All right, we're halfway through. And it's the perfect time to introduce our case studies. We have four case studies tonight that we're going to explore. I will read the case studies. I want this to be somewhat interactive. I don't have any polls to put up where you can vote digitally. Maybe next week I'll, uh, I'll work on that to have some sort of interactive voting system. But I, do, I would love for your feedback, whether it's in the form of an audible response or a, a picking up of the hand. I'm going to read the cases one at a time, and let's, uh, let's, let's, let's have a conversation. So as I read the cases, I want you to think about what you feel should be the decision, the verdict. Is it, should it be allowed? Should it not be allowed? What's the deal? This will help us get into some clear contrast between U.S. law and Jewish law, which reflect on core distinctions between secular values and Jewish values. All right, let's jump in with the case studies. So actually, before I do that, let me just check in. Is everybody with me? Yes? Thumbs up? Okay, amazing. You guys are awesome. Okay, stay with me. These case studies are amazing and also extremely some of them are just very, um, not disturbing. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll make your own judgment. Okay, here we go. Let's jump in. I'm going to read these. Case study A. Okay, here we go. Case study A. If you have a book, it's on page 8. I call this case study boxed in. Nicholas Young considered himself a lucky man, a German who em immigrated to the United States in 1848. Young had worked hard to carve out a living for himself and eventually prosper as the owner of a mortuary in San Francisco. The business allowed him and wife Rosina to, pur to purchase a modest lot on the top of California Street Hill, where they built a quaint cottage-style home and planted a beautiful garden. Every day, California sunlight and fresh air would stream in through their windows. Young had no reason to believe that anything could interrupt his idyllic life or that any one person could somehow deprive him of the beautiful days he had worked so hard to enjoy. But Young also hadn't accounted for, cue up the, uh, the villain music, Charles Crocker, a very rich and very petty man who would eventually become both his neighbor and the bane of his existence. At six feet tall and 300 pounds, Charles Crocker cut an imposing figure. He had filled his bank account by being one of the big four barons behind the building of the Central Pacific Railroad. By the 1870s, he could afford whatever he desired, and what he wanted was to loom over San Francisco like a gargoyle. Crocker and his wealthy partners began scouting California Street Hill for its scenic views and proximity to the city's financial district. 
Soon a group of wealthy men, including Crocker, were buying up all the homes on their chosen blocks. By the time Crocker was finished, he had erected a 12,000 square foot mansion. With its new wealthy inhabitants, California Street Hill was renamed Knob Hill. As the project neared completion in 1876, there was one nagging detail on the northeast corner of the block Nicholas Young was reluctant to sell. His cottage was, dwar was dwarfed by the mansions going up, but he had come to enjoy the neighborhood. With one or both men causing acrimony, the end result was that Young was not moving. At a reported cost of $3,000, Crocker had his workers construct a wooden fence on his land that towered over three sides of Young's home. With its 40-foot tall panels, the enclosure acted like a window shade, blotting out the sun and cool air and immersing Young in darkness. You with me? Yeah, you got the story? Here's the question. Here's the poll question. Should Charles Crocker's fence be legally allowed to stand? All right, I want yeses or noes. All right, do you think, raise your hand. Let's do it first with a raise of hand. Do you think, it could be the real hand or virtual hand. Either way, do you think that Crocker, Crocker's fence should be allowed to remain? Do you, do you think it should be allowed to raise your hand if you think it's legal? Okay. All right. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. If you think that it is not legal, it should be taken down, it should be forced by the law to be taken down. Raise your hand if you believe it's not legal. Okay. I voted twice, by the way, but that was just sampling what it should look like. Um, all right. We are going to get into this case in depth. Um, as we go throughout the, through the rest of tonight's lesson. But I first want to hear from you, what's the rationale? If you believe, or if you can articulate a reason why the, why the fence should remain, tell me why. Why should the fence remain? The fence was built on his neighbor's property, whether it's a fence or a 12,000 square foot house. It, it, it's the individual's right to do what he wants on his property. Perfect. It's his property. He can do whatever he wants. He can put up a 40-foot wall. He can put up an 80-foot wall. It's his property, his rights. Good. Somebody artic Excellent. Somebody articulate a reason why you might believe that he should not be allowed to have that fence up. It's against zoning. Uh, you know, against zoning. Against oh, so zoning. somebody just said, Amir just put in, they have zoning laws back then. Yeah, that's my question. I couldn't answer it. What were the zoning laws? My guess is based on how the narrative reads, there were no zoning laws. That's right. the inference. But if there were zoning like in my neighborhood, that's the luck with a 40-foot Right, exactly. By the way, zoning laws, <laughs> part of the reason why zoning laws were put into place were for, because of people like Crocker, right, uh, doing, doing these spite fences. But, excellent. Okay, so we talked about this issue. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good with this. We have three more case studies, so I want to move a little bit quickly through the case studies. All right, on to the next one. Okay, I'm going to read this one as well. On to the next one. Okay, oh, by the way, here's a picture. Look at that. How lovely. How lovely of a picture. Here's the spite fence right there. That's quite the fence. I can't really make out this picture who's what. Charles Crocker's mansion. That's a, that's a big mansion. Yeah. Um, some other dude's mansion. And the spite fence. Okay. So where's the guy's house? Probably uh, somewhere in there behind it. Yeah. Okay, next, next is case study B. Okay, listen to this. Okay.
Okay? Rachel. So case study A was a real case. This is, you know, a fictional case, but listen to the case. Rachel maintains a large and beautiful flower bed in her yard. But one day, her neighbor, Joe, built a high wooden fence between their properties that cast shade over the garden, causing the flowers to die. When Rachel asked Joe why his fence needed to be so high, she was told that it was necessary to protect his birds from cats entering the property. Rachel offered to replace the wooden fence with a glass screen at her personal expense in order to allow her flowers to receive sunlight without exposing Joe's birds to danger. But Joe refused to allow Rachel to replace the fence without offering any reason. Should Joe be legally required to allow Rachel to replace his wooden fence with a glass screen? Okay, you with me on the question on the case? That's such a good case. I love it. All right, again, this Joe, he's put zoning is on his side. It's not higher than the zoning. So just to eliminate that, that, that consideration, it's within the grounds of zoning. But it is causing shade on Rachel's property. It's causing her flowers to die. She offers to replace it at her own cost with a glass wall, right, or a glass screen, which would accomplish what he is asking for, which is protection from his birds. He's saying, no, I just want to keep my fence up. Should he be legally required to allow Rachel to replace the wooden fence with a glass screen, yes or no? Jump in. Who says yes? He should be legally required to replace his fence. Ooh, all right, very few. Who thinks he, sh he is not required to replace? Okay, many more say not required. Mira writes, she could also just move her garden, assuming there's still a spot. Let's say, let's say that, um, let's say that there is no place for her to move it. Let's just say it's a small yard and, or, or the fence is blocking all the sunlight. Okay, let's just take away that, that, that variable. Okay, but it still seems like most people are saying that um, Joe is not, cannot legally be required to, uh, uh, to swap out the fence even at Rachel's expense. Okay, if you thought that Joe should be legally required to do so, jump in now and tell me why. Why should Joe be legally required to replace the, the wood with the glass at her expense? Rabbi Ari, it's my understanding that in property disputes, there's something called an easement. Has one been created or not? For example, if you've allowed someone to use a path through your property for 20 years, and all of a sudden uh, you tell them you can't use this path, you have given them an easement right. to use your property. Just, this, just like that, for years, Rachel has had a garden. With, which had sunlight. So what I'm saying is, I don't sleep, but I'm saying my thinking is, if a path is, is protected by an easement, her flower is protected by an easement. I hear you. She, okay. money, and it's something that was the way it was, and all yeah, of a sudden... Yeah, I hear you. Okay, okay, that's good. I hear you, I'm with you. All right, who says no? Who says, no, he's not required to do so? It's hard to imagine that in the hours of daylight, this one particular fence occludes all daylight, all sunshine from shining on her flowers. Okay, fine, I'm with you, but let's... ridiculous point. I, I, I'm with you, but let's just say for so somehow, somehow, that's what's going on. If we can somehow imagine. Would the law step in and tell Joe you have to replace your wooden fence with a glass one because she's asking for it? Because the neighbor's asking for it? And, and even though well, she's going to cover it? can't put up a wood fence. 
Huh? Oh, okay, I heard that side. I want to hear the other side. Yeah. I want to hear the other side. Someone who says no, that he's not required to do so. What do you think? Right. So once, so again, a Alex says that it's, it's, it's just a weird, it's just, it's, it's not. It's, it's, you know, a question of his personal property, his, his right to do what he wants on his personal property. And so he can have know, whatever it's material. It's hard to think that everyone does an action from day to day thinking of everyone else around them. Right. Or I would imagine it's hard to think that just because the neighbor wants a different material, suddenly he needs to, you know, even if she's going to pay for it, that he should, you know, just change things around. Like, I'm not interested. I have my fence and that's it. Yeah, Lisa. I have a question. Is this, are we talking ethics or are we talking law? Well, we're talking about law in this case. Law. Okay. Yeah. Good question, though. Good question. So, Rabbi, I would, I would say that there's no requirement that he switch the glass, but then the woman with the garden may have some, some damages here. Her garden has died and she, she can't afford the groceries. And, you know, an argument can be made that she's been injured here. Whether or not, I don't think you can force him to, to switch the glass, but... Right, but there might be a lawsuit. Okay, good. Especially, good. especially if it's vegetables. Right. Well. <laughs> well, no, but the deal is, is if you read it, it says a beautiful flower bed. And that's my question. In Jewish law, would there be a different answer if we're talking food? versus flowers? That's a very good question. All right, we're going to get to the Jewish stuff soon. I'm, 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 I'm loving all of the points that everyone is saying. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Good. Anybody else want to jump in? I don't have a good answer for that yet. Um, yes, Richard. Yeah, so if there's, if there's no law uh, that, that's a concept of, of air rights, then, then the woman with the flower bed um, has no rights, and the guy, her next-door neighbor, could do as he pleases. If there's a law on the books concerning air rights, then then she has a legal right uh, to have him uh, make amends. The fact that she offered to do uh, something to, to offer a solution was was uh, very neighborly and friendly, and um, <clears throat> it would have been the right thing for him to do to accept. He's not legally obligated to do so. Good. Okay. I lived, Excellent. I lived in a, I lived in a house with a beautiful garden. And my next door neighbor, which was south of me, uh, with, with all of the southern sun, um, uh, uh, before he bought his house, uh, somebody had chopped down uh, er everything in his garden. So there was no encumbrances for sun coming into our backyard. Uh, two years later, that place became so overgrown that it blocked out all of the sun. Huh. And my backyard became a, a mosquito-infested damp backyard and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Wow, this is a real what story. I to, yeah, crazy. I tried to do the reason with my neighbor, uh, it, it fell on deaf ears. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Okay, this happens in real life. Good, excellent. All right, let's hold, let's hold these ideas. Really good ideas, and thank you for sharing that story. Really good ideas that we've had so far. We have two more case studies, and then we need to jump in to what Jewish law says about this. All right, which is, I think, will blow you away. Um, let's go back to the screen. I'm going to read case study C, and it's the Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi connection. Michael moved into a new house. Before setting up his own Wi-Fi connection, he realized that his neighbors have an open Wi-Fi network. Can Michael use his neighbor's Wi-Fi network without their knowledge? Okay, again, he notices... Can he or should he? <laughs> legally, 
Legally, is he allowed to? Is he allowed to use his neighbor's Wi-Fi network without their knowledge? What do you think? What do you think? Who says yes? Who says no? A lot more no's went up. All right. If you said yes, why'd you say yes? I said yes only because he's not taking anything away from his neighbor. Okay, interesting. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Bandwidth. bandwidth. Okay, good. All right. Um, but then we can modify the question, what if the neighbors are on vacation and they're not losing out bandwidth at that moment because they're not using it? Well, to me, the theft is to, to the, the Wi-Fi provider. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. What if you go plug in an appliance? His electric outlet. Well, then his bill goes up. But in this case, one could argue that if, I mean, if you pay by the usage, that's one thing. But David is saying a good point about the internet provider. It's a very interesting twist on it. Um, but vis-a-vis the, the homeowner, the neighbor, if they're paying a flat rate, 100 bucks a month, no matter, you know, unlimited whatever usage. It's uh, an intrusion. It's an intrusion to okay. the system he's paying for. Okay, good. All right, perfect. Yes. It's, it's a great security risk. Oh, that too? Good. For the first person. Good. Because just think of a scenario. You, you tap into a neighbor's uh, system, and you know his wife is Joan. So you put in Joan 1, you put in Joan 2, Joan 01, there you are. Boom. Your children's name. It's a great security right. risk. Right. Okay. Good. Um, let's look at the last case study. I know we're moving quickly through these last two, but I want to get to the, uh, to, the, to the concepts. All right, case study D. This is the last case study before we jump into the themes. Sarah's next-door neighbor, David, left on a lengthy vacation. It is difficult to find parking on their street, and David's driveway, situated smack in between their two homes, is now empty. Sarah wishes to park her car there while her neighbor is away. Should Sarah be, again, this is legally allowed, to park her car in David's vacant driveway without his advance permission. He's on vacation. She can't get a hold of him. Or maybe she can, but she's not getting a hold of him. Um, should we're she... assuming the driveway is on his property. The driveway is on his property. It is David's driveway, correct? But it's okay. adjacent to hers, right? It's between their two homes, but it's definitely his driveway. It's not a shared driveway. So it's his driveway, um, and, she, and he's away. He's not using it. He's away. And she, it's hard to find parking. And she, one night she comes home. I'm just embellishing. Midnight, there's no park on the street. There's a driveway. He's in Florida. And she wants to park there. Should she be allowed legally to park in the driveway? Yes. Who says yes? A few people say yes. Who says no? More people say no. It's interesting. Okay. Very interesting. Um, you guys think we do these case studies to discuss the law. I just get profiles. No, I'm kidding. So interesting, very interesting about the, uh, the driveway. So if you said no, why do you say no? No drive. They're not using the park. Oh, I'm going to put an argument out there. David's not using the driveway. He's on vacation. It's sitting empty. Why can't you park there? What do you think? So what if something happens to her car and then she turns around and sues David? Or what if David's house, God forbid, catches on fire and starts the fire engine? Excellent liability. Good, good. With that same logic, you could say, well, you know, David went away. Um, Sarah's got, uh, all of a sudden, her family shows up uh, unbeknownst to her. 
She has no room for them. No one's home in David's house anyway. Excellent. Why, why can't they just stay there? Excellent. Perfect. There's, there's actually there's actually benefit to David because now it looks like someone's at the house. Ooh. <laughs> oh, counter argument. I oh, love it. This is fantastic. Yeah. This is fantastic. By the way, the um, this would be a new form of Airbnb where we just find out who's on vacation and listed and whoever needs a place, you know, whatever. It's uh, it's a thing. Okay, excellent. Yeah. What if he comes back early and then he can't park in his own driveway? What if, I was thinking about another scenario, what if he told someone else that they could park there while he's gone and that other guy shows up, right, and boom, it's taken and they were counting on that space. Okay, good. There's a lot, okay, so let's, let's put... All four cases, just to remind you, case number one is, um, is Crocker's fence that I've called boxed in. He builds the 40-foot high uh, uh, fence or wall to block out and to kind of, you know, bug his neighbor. The case study B, the second case study was about the dead flowers. The guy puts up a fence and she offers to replace it with a glass screen. Third case was about the open Wi-Fi network. Can it be used um, without the neighbor's permission? And the fourth case study that we just did was the empty driveway. Can Sarah park in that driveway without advanced permission? All right, we have a lot of interesting cases. We had a lot of great conversation. And I thank you again for that conversation. I just lo- love discussing these things. Um, I want to approach this from a uniquely Jewish perspective. To do that, we need to dig in a little bit deeper into some of the things that we discussed earlier. The notion, the overarching idea that Jewish law tells us, to do what's right and good in the eyes of God. What does that mean? What does it mean? We said before that clearly Jewish law is not just about rights, but about doing what's right. What does that mean? What does it mean to do what's right? So let's explore a quick um, figure or chart in your book. Okay, these are just some of the laws that are derived or that are associated with doing what's right and good. I'm going to put this up, put this up on the screen. So some biblical commandments that are under the general category of doing what's right and good. So from Leviticus, the mitzvah to not stand by when someone's life is at risk. Or from Deuteronomy, to pick up any lost object you encounter and return it to its owner. In Exodus, it says, provide roadside assistance. Now, okay, they didn't have cars, but it says if your neighbor's donkey is struggling with its load and it can't move because it's way down, yeah, and then help, help the donkey. And from Leviticus, finally, number four, don't spread gossip. These are by no means the only four commandments that are under this category, that are within this category of doing what's right and good, but these are four such mitzvot that express the same theme of doing what's right and good. And the reason why they're under this category of right and good is because you don't find the equivalent in U.S. law, for example. U.S. law does not require somebody to go ahead and save someone's life. With the exception of, of, with, with the exception of specific cases, that's the exception, not the rule, there is no obligation, typically, to go ahead and intervene to try to save someone else's life. It's just it is an obligation. To pick up a lost object and then try to track down the owner, it's something nice, but it's not obligated in secular law. In Jewish law, it is. Provide roadside assistance. You have to stop. You have to stop. Are you kidding me? 
Not in, not, in, not in secular law. In Jewish law, you do. Don't spread gossip. Are you kidding me? TMZ would shut down. Right? All the magazines, all the gossip, People magazine, Us Weekly, everyone's going to shut down if we uh, don't spread gossip. These are values. These are mitzvot. These are not just good deeds. These are obligations in Jewish law, in Torah law, that are under the rubric of doing what's right and good. It's under that umbrella of doing what's right and good. And it tells us to do things that other systems of law would simply not tell us that we have to do. But Jewish law, because Jewish law is our playbook, not rule book, it's a playbook for better living. It says, you know what it means to be a good person? It means if someone's at danger, you help them. If someone's in danger, you help them. If someone lost something and you see it, pick it up, find the owner. That's, what's, that's doing what's right. Someone's in trouble on the side of the road, help them out. Yeah, don't spread gossip. That's not nice. That hurts someone. So these are, these are mitzvot, these are obligations that are under this classification of doing what's right. That's what a mensch does. A mensch does these things or doesn't do the last one because that is what's right and good. Nachmanides, Ramban, further explains what it means to do what's right and good. And I'm going to read this. Our sages expounded on this verse and explained that it instructs us to go beyond the letter of the law. In other words, the Torah first exhorts us to observe all God's commandments. And now it instructs us to be careful to do that which is right and good, even when not explicitly commanded to do so. Because God cherishes good and proper conduct. That's a good line right there. God cherishes good and proper conduct. God wants us to be good people. This instruction is very important because it would be impossible for the Torah to exhaustively address all of our conduct with our friends and neighbors, all of our business affairs, and the welfare of society and the world. Instead, after offering multiple specific commandments, such as you shall not go about as a gossip monger, do not take revenge or bear a grudge, do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood, do not curse even a deaf person, and stand in the presence of the aged, or stand up when, when an elderly person walks in, the Torah then concludes with a generalized commandment to do that which is, quote, right and good, meaning to go beyond the letter of the law. This is Nachmanides, and this is powerful. What he's saying is that the ideals of Torah, Jewish law doesn't end with the 613 mitzvot. It doesn't end with the one specified in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in Genesis. It doesn't end there because it's open to doing what's right and good. And there can be an infinite number of examples, an almost infinite number of examples of scenarios in which one would be required by Torah law to do what's right, or by Jewish law to do what's right and good in the eyes of God. Not all the details are specified, but they would be under the category of doing what's right and good. So in this spirit, and this is about to get very important, in this spirit, the sages of the Talmud legislated certain actions to ensure that we do the right thing and not, God forbid, the opposite of the right thing. You won't find these details spelled out in Torah itself in the five books of Moses, but it's all based on, as we just said, it's all based on the umbrella mitzvah of doing what's right and good. I'm going to read text number six, back inside. Let's take a look at this one. Text number six from the Talmud. A person is compelled by law not to act in a manner characteristic of the inhabitants of Sodom or Sodom. 
A person is compelled by law not to act like the people of Sodom. Well, how did they act? And I know that people typically associate it with something, but not in, not in Judaism. In Judaism, Jewish law, there's something completely different. What do we mean not to act in the manner characteristic of the inhabitants of Sodom? To understand this, we need to go to the Mishnah. Mishnah and Tractate Avot 510, text 7a. I will read this as well. Listen to this, because it talks about the people of Sodom. One who insists, what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours, is of average character. Okay, let me break this down. Someone who says, my stuff is my stuff, your stuff is your stuff, let's leave each other alone. Average character is normal. However, another opinion maintains that such an attitude is characteristic of the wicked people of Sodom. If you say what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, it's wicked. It's like the wicked people of Sodom. I have a few questions on this. Question number one, how do you have such a difference of opinion from one extreme to the other? The first opinion says that if you say what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, it's average character. Somebody says live and let live. Don't bother me, I won't bother you. Stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine. First opinion says average character. Second one says, it's like the wicked people of Sodom, who, by the way, got destroyed in a sulfuric fire incident, right? A divine punishment. So you're telling me one opinion says it's average, it's normal. The other one says it's like the wicked people of Sodom. How do you go from one extreme to the other? That's, that's crazy. Second of all, what's so bad? How could it possibly be the, the characteristic of the wicked people of Sodom if you just say what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours? It sounds like a very normal thing to say. Like, this is my stuff. That's your stuff. Let's not bother each other. What do they say? Good fences make for good neighbors. What's wrong? What's wrong with this attitude? They're forgetting about the commandment of hospitality. Isn't there a commandment that um, says you need to have um, be hospitable to um, strangers? Good, excellent, good. We're about to see in a commentary on the Mishnah that we just read from the Me'iri, he's about to explain along the lines of what you're saying but he's going to explain how the two opinions of the Mishnah, opinion one and opinion two, are not talking about the same case, but they're talking about two different cases. Where the first opinion says it's average, and the second one says it's wicked, they're not talking about the same scenario. There's two scenarios being discussed. Scenario number one and scenario number two are different. Let's look inside. This is really big. Okay? Both statements in the Mishnah are valid because the second view which classifies such conduct as wicked refers to those who refuse to permit others to benefit from them even when they will incur no personal or monetary expense as a result. Such conduct is characteristic of the inhabitants of Sodom. By contrast, the first view of the Mishnah which classifies such conduct as average refers to those who refuse to allow others to benefit from them when doing so would come at, at, a, at a personal or monetary expense. Individuals who adopt this approach cannot be compared to the inhabitants of Sodom because they seek simply to avoid incurring losses through the actions of others, just as they would not inflict a loss upon their fellow. This indeed reflects the average character, and I will explain it. If you have an opportunity to help someone at no cost to you, no cost to you, to not do so, would be evil. I'll say that again. If you can help someone else and it will not cost you a penny, 
financially, emotionally, time, no sweat off your back, nothing, no, no extra effort on your part, and you can help someone out, and you say, I won't, wow, that's evil. That's Sodom. That's not being hospitable. It's, you could have helped someone, and you said no for no reason. That's not nice. That's the second half of the Mishnah. The first half of the Mishnah is talking about a case where you could help someone, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost. It's going to cost you something. There's going to be a loss of time or money or whatever it is. In that case, if a person says, you know what, I, just, I, can't, I can't afford it or I don't have the time, that's average. Still not ideal, by the way. Ideal would be to do it anyway and to incur the loss. But if a person says, I don't want to incur the loss to help someone else out, that's average. But to say, it's not going to cost me anything, but I refuse to help them out, that's evil. That's wicked. Are you with me on that, on that interpretation of the Mishnah? Again. What's the source of that commentary? I mean, what, what's the root that they would, would even be commenting about that in the Mishnah? Where did the Me'iri get it from, you're saying? Yeah. He must be getting it from either Talmudic or other, other forms of commentary. But the, the essential principle holds true, which is, and we'll see this reflected in Talmudic law. There's a case from the Talmud cited by Maimonides that we'll bring soon. That in cases where you can help someone out and it doesn't cost you a penny, to not do so is midas sadaim, is acting like sadaim. And the court, as we read before in text 5, I want to say, the courts will actually enforce you not to act like that. They will, they will doesn't rule. That, doesn't, doesn't that harken back to, to love thy neighbor as thyself? You could put it under that umbrella. We're putting it under the umbrella of doing what's right and good. That's, but you could, you could theoretically put it under that umbrella. And, and, and also in, 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 in the language, in, in, in Hebrew, um, the, just like the concept of possession um, wasn't there at, at the time that the Torah was given. I mean, even, even the, the word for I have, the we have, you have, in, in Hebrew, there's no construct for, for personal ownership. Uh, everything was shared. So then, then you, you have this, uh, this society evolves, and, and now you have a construct of, of personal property that needs to be interpreted uh, within some, some type of realm of, of, of understanding. But like in, in Hebrew, it's, it's how do you say I have? There is to me. Right. There was, there was no real possession. Good. So, so didn't that inform, inform all of this going back to, to its roots. Good, excellent points. We're going to actually, we have a class that's focused on um, ownership and possession. We, one of the lessons of this course is exclusively focused on that. So you raise some interesting points. We'll focus on that there. But the, what I want to make sure that we, we focus on over here is simply this. The Me'iri is citing a distinction between two opportunities to help someone else out. If you can help someone else out and it doesn't hurt, it doesn't cost you anything, and you choose not to, you say, I'm still not going to help them, that's wicked. That's evil. And the courts will rule against that. And we'll see soon how the courts can enforce that. If a person says, I, I know I could help them out, but it's, it's, it's going to cost me something, and I, I don't want to do it, then you're within your rights to, 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 uh, to let that go. Let's see how this is captured in a scenario from the Talmud as Maimonides describes it very beautifully. Okay, take a look at this. A case of walls and windows. Neighbor 
neighborly law and construction law. A per, listen to this story. A person has windows set in the lower portion of the wall of his house. Okay, so you have a house and you have windows, yeah, lower, lower portion of the wall. And his neighbor decides to erect the building that would block them, block the windows. The neighbor, uh, who's about to build the house, proposes to solve the problem by installing new windows in the upper portion of the homeowner's wall. In other words, the neighbor who's doing the construction says to the neighbor, to the homeowner, says, look, I, I know that when I build this, when I build my new home, it's going to block your windows. So I'm offering no expense to you. I will put in windows in your house on a higher area where they're not blocked by my house. Okay? If this arrangement won't cause the homeowner any difficulty at all and would not require him to leave his home during the construction, he, the homeowner, cannot prevent the new neighbor from performing this construction. The homeowner is, now this construction meaning the construction of the new home, the homeowner is compelled by law to allow the neighbor to close the windows in the bottom part of his wall and create new windows higher up. This is because it would be Sodom-like conduct for the homeowner to refuse this accommodation. This principle applies to every situation in which one individual will benefit while his fellow will not lose anything as a result. In all such cases, the relevant party is compelled by law to cooperate. Again, very important case. And the case is, in short, where the fellow, there's, a, there's an existing home, somebody wants to build a home next door, it's going to block the light, so the new builder says to the old homeowner, listen, you know, let's, I want to be accommodating, let me put in windows in your home, let me help you out, it's not, no cost to you, no bother to you, no, you know, it's not going to be uncomfortable for you, I'll put in new windows and everyone's going to be happy. If the homeowner says, no, I refuse, the builder has no responsibility to try any further. He can build his home as he wishes, and the homeowner cannot block it. Why? Because he is trying to be accommodating, and this guy, by saying no, is just being Sodom-like. It's a win-win, and he's saying, no, I don't want, to, I, I don't want a win-win, not giving a good reason. There's no reason. Now, if there is a reason, then none of this applies. If there is a reason why he doesn't want this to happen, and it's a good reason, then scratch this entire case. But if there's no reason, and he says, I don't want it, then that is not okay in Jewish law. Based on this, let's get back to our case studies. Are you with me on this? Are you with me on this? Based on this, let's get back to our first two case studies. Cases of walls. These were literally cases of fences and walls. Let's start with case study B. If you will recall, case study B was about, was it Joe and, hold on, hold on. Let me get my case study straight. Case study B was with, was with Rachel and Joe. And Joe builds a fence to keep out the cats. And Rachel says, let me replace it with glass, no expense to you. You don't have to worry about it, I'll, I'll replace it. And Joe says, no, I don't, want my wall, I don't want my fence replaced. I don't care about your flowers. What would Jewish law say? What would Jewish law say? How is Joe acting? There's no cost to him, and it could benefit his neighbor's flowers. They can keep on growing. But Joe's saying no, but it doesn't cost him anything. Rachel's going to pay for it. It's not bothering him. What's that called in Jewish law? 
Not being a mensch. Not being a mensch. It's being like? Sodom. Sodom. And you know what Jewish law says about that? The courts can enforce a person to not behave like the people of Sodom. The courts will get involved, and in this case, again, we're, we're in America, so that's not, you know, it doesn't, the law of the land is the law, but Jewish law would have something to say about this. In that scenario, case study B, Jewish law would say that Joe has to allow Rachel to replace the fence with the glass wall. Now, if Rachel says to Joe, you need to replace it, Joe's under no obligation to spend his own money to make his neighbor happy. But if it's no expense to him and it's going to make her happy, to refuse is just not nice. It's not being a mensch. Are you with me on that? Listen to what the implication is. Jewish law enforces menschy behavior. Isn't that amazing? You know why? Because it's not a rule book. It's a playbook for life. It's not a book about rules. It's a book about better living. And you know what it means to live better? When I say better, I don't mean like what you would find in the self-help section about how to make friends and make lots of money. What I mean is how how to be better, a better human being, a kinder, gentler, more compassionate, better human being. It's when your neighbor is asking for something and it doesn't cost you anything, but it's gonna make their life better. You say, sure, that's what it means to be a mensch. To say, no, I refuse, Sodom-like behavior. What about case study A? Crocker builds the 40-foot wall. What would Jewish law say about that? Okay or not okay? Of course it's not okay. If, 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 if you're not supposed to refuse the fence that she's going to sw- swap out to make her life better, certainly you can't go to make someone's life miserable. You can't put up a fence with the sole intention to ruin someone else's house and property. That would be, of course, forbidden by Jewish law. By the way, how would U.S. law rule in these cases? You know what it ruled in the 1800s in the Crocker case? California ruled that Crocker was, al- was allowed to have, keep his fence up because that was before spite, law, spite fence laws. That was before the spite, spite fence laws. He was allowed to keep his fence up. Jewish law, the case wouldn't begin. You want to go ahead and ruin someone's life or property because I, what lo, Jewish law would say, where do you get the Jewish law doesn't give you rights. <laughs> Jewish law, Torah law is not about rights. It's about doing what's right. And that's not right. You can't do that. It's not right. The case doesn't get off the ground. The court or Jewish law re- orders the removal of that wall. First second, the court becomes aware of it. Case study B, the court orders Joe to allow Rachel to swip, swap out the wall. It's not hurting you. Now, time out. If Joe gives a good argument why it is a problem, then everything changes. But if there's no reason, which was our case, he doesn't give a reason, and he has no reason, then has to do what's right. It's going to benefit her. Final case. To introduce one more case. All of this was regarding someone's fence on their own property. You know, do they have to uh, be accommodating to a neighbor, etc.? But what about a more extreme case? What about a more extreme case of accommodation? Can I cite accommodation on someone else's behalf? Can I move into someone's house or someone's property and say, hey, it's not hurting you. 
Imagine. Imagine that, right? So say you have some empty spot in your yard. I'm just going to move my stuff in. It's not hurting you. Is that kosher? Take a look at the Talmud. I'm going to share my screen. Take a look at this case. From Talmud Bavakama. If one lives in his fellow's yard, literally, talking about a squatter, if one lives in his fellow's yard without the latter's knowledge, how does he pull that off? Who knows? Maybe the guy doesn't live there. It's just, you know, he has a property. This guy moves in. Does he have to pay him rent or not? In other words, when he's discovered, does he have to pay him the back rent? The question is in regard to a yard that is not on the market for rent, but the squatter is a person who usually rents. What is the law? Can the squatter say to the owner, what loss have I caused you? You haven't lost anything. Like, it doesn't hurt you. Or perhaps the owner can insist, look, you benefit from my property instead of paying rent elsewhere, so you should pay me. This is a case in which one individual benefits, the squatter, while the other one does not lose anything, the owner. The Talmud concludes, listen to the shocking conclusion. Rabbah, the son of Rav Huna, stated, my father ruled in the name of Rav that the squatter does not have to pay rent. Listen to this case. We have to be very careful as we understand what the case is and what it's not. The case is very specifically a house, a property that's not for rent, so it's not taking up a unit, so it's not for rent. The guy doesn't know about it. The squatter's living there. The guy finds out about it. He says, okay, well, you've been living here for three months. You would have had to pay rent somewhere else, so give me three months' rent. And the other guy says, bro, you don't rent out your property. You're not a, that's not a rental. I didn't cause you any harm. Nothing, I didn't damage your property. I didn't cause you a financial loss by taking up someone else's apartment that they could have paid for it. You would, no one would have paid for it anyway. So what loss have I caused you? The halachic ruling in Jewish law is, this one benefits, this one didn't lose. And what's the ruling? Doesn't have to pay the rent. Shocking. Doesn't have to pay the rent. But what's... This leads to squatters' rights? Not exactly. Because what I was about to say is what's more important is what the Talmud doesn't say. You know what the Talmud doesn't say? The Talmud doesn't say that the squatters allowed to stay there. You notice that? The only... Listen carefully. The only question is regard to back rent, potential back rent, of a guy who never rented it out to begin with, right? The, the owner, property owner. But the question is not, can the guy just say, hey, I'm not causing you any harm, I'm allowed to stay here, which is what you just mentioned, Alex. Tosfot, the, one of the great commentators in the Talmud says that's because, the reason why the Talmud doesn't discuss it, because under no scenario is the squatter allowed to remain once the homeowner says, get out. Take a look at the screen. Let me share Tosfot. We're almost done. We only compel the property owner not to conduct himself like the inhabitants of Sodom regarding the past. The squatter who resided on his property without paying rent is not compelled to pay him rent for the past. At the same time, listen to this. It is clear that the property owner has the right to protest the squatter's presence and need not permit the squatter to remain on his property. He can kick him out. And now I will ask you the question of the class, the bombshell question. If we discuss the value, the Jewish value, the Jewish, Jewish law value of accommodation, letting people, you know, enjoy and benefit and not being like Sodom, no, you can't. So why shouldn't we force the property owner to let the guy live in his property? 
It's not harming him. Let's say it's not harming him. Not harming him. He wasn't going to use it. He doesn't rent it out. Why are we kicking him out? Because I want you out my property? That's not nice. Isn't that like Sodom? Don't we not want people to be like Sodom? Rav Shimon Shkup, one of the great Talmudic minds of the last century, 100 years ago, he shares this incredible insight. Listen to this. He'll basically tell us that there is a loss in this case. If the squatter can force himself on a property, that is a loss. Because you know what it means to the property owner? That they've lost their autonomy. They've lost control over their property. And that itself is a loss of the property. Take a look at the final text, Rav Shimon Shkup. In my opinion, the reason Tosfot rules that the property owner cannot be actively compelled to allow a squatter on his property is because compulsion in such an instance would be a forcible negation of the property owner's control over his own property. Most people would object to this. The failure of an individual to consent to something that most people would object to cannot be considered Sodom-like conduct. Who in their right mind would say, I relinquish control of my property, whoever wants to live there lives there? That's not a normal thing. Therefore, to say I don't want that is not to be, to be a Sodom. It's normal behavior. It's not Sodom-like conduct. However, the squatter's presence on the property without the owner's knowledge before he finds out doesn't negate the owner's control of the property because the owner retains the right to evict the squatter at any time. Therefore, we have a very interesting scenario in Jewish law where before, listen to this, before the property owner finds out about the squatter, the squatter's allowed to live there. Because objectively at this point, without the knowledge, it's actually not causing the owner any harm. He doesn't know about it. It's not damaging the property. Assuming. If it's damaging the property, forget it. It's, uh, all bets are off. But assuming it's not damaging the property, no one else is being um, inconvenienced, and the property owner doesn't know about it, at that stage, this guy's benefiting, this guy's not losing, he's allowed to do it. This guy's allowed to, essentially, guy's allowed to squat over there. But once the owner finds out about it, and that's why he doesn't have to pay rent, but once the owner finds out about it, he has the right to evict. This will help us answer the remaining two case studies. All right, and with this, we'll, we'll, we'll conclude our class. What was case study C? Case, as you recall, case study C was, can Michael use his neighbor's Wi-Fi without their knowledge? Can he use the Wi-Fi without their knowledge? Well, we've just, well, first of all, first of all, we have some very good points that were mentioned before. If it's cutting into the bandwidth, of course not. You can't benefit at someone else's detriment. Of course not. You can't say, you have to be a good person and hurt while you're hurting them. That's not right. If it's costing them any extra penny, can't do that. Um, but theoretically, and I know David raised a good question about the service provider. I don't have a good response to that. But aside from that consideration, if it's simply about David and the neighbor with Wi-Fi, sorry, Michael, not David, Michael and the neighbor with Wi-Fi, right? And let's say the neighbor's out of town or maybe the neighbor's at work during the day and he knows that. The neighbor, no one's using that internet connection. And he, it's an open connection as of, the, as of right now. And Michael wants to jump on it, right? One could say, one could say, I'm not saying this, but one could say that it's this guy's benefiting, this guy's not losing. In which case, maybe he's allowed to. Maybe he's allowed to on some level. Again, don't do it. Don't do it. U.S. law would not be happy with this. This would not be a good thing to do because we've got to follow the laws of the land. But from a Jewish law perspective, 
to benefit when someone's not hurting, it's not, it's not, it's, it's actually not a bad thing. What about the driveway? The neighbor's out of town on vacation. You come in late at night. Uh, Sarah wants to park there in the driveway. Is she, she has no permission to do so. She hasn't, she hasn't asked. Can she park there? That's a good question. It seems like the squatter's case, right? The squatter case. I can't, can't, again, it's, uh, taking out the question of liability and the other, which were very good points that were mentioned before. But simply from a perspective of ownership and violating that ownership, it would seem like the case of the squatter, where as long as the owner doesn't know about it, it seems like maybe it's okay. I, it's hard to say okay. Maybe it's not, not okay. Because this but one's... Rabbi, yeah. I'm sorry, Rabbi. The... There was a distinction in the case that you read that when someone becomes aware... Correct. Right. Yeah. You know, okay, I, I was they a, don't have to... What they used, they don't have to pay for being in the parking lot, they don't have to pay for the Wi-Fi that they had used, but I'm now aware that you're doing this. Correct. You know, at this point, you have to stop. I was going to mention, and that's exactly was the next thing I was going to mention, but if the homeowners have a camera... Right, and they can see the surveillance camera, and they see someone parking there, and they call up and they say, "Sarah, you parking in our driveway while we're gone? We prefer you not do that." She can't say, "But why?" It doesn't affect. She can't pull that card because if she could, if she could force her way onto their driveway, then that means they've lost control over their property, and no homeowner would be okay with that. Unless they're okay with that, in which case it's not, a, it's not a question. But if they're not okay with that, it's understandable that you cannot force a homeowner to give up parts of their property. In the case of the fence, it wasn't giving up the fence. In the case of the fence, it was giving up wood for glass. That's not giving up a fence. It was being accommodating. To not do so would not be nice. But in the case of parking the driveway, exactly. If the neighbors find out about it and protest and say, don't do that, She's not allowed to do that. If they don't know about it, again, still don't do it. But from Jewish law perspective, there's an ethical idea of doing what's right and good, which would encourage the homeowner to be okay with it, certainly without their knowledge that it wouldn't be a problem because we would assume that good, that good uh, desire for the other, absent the formal protest. With this, yes. Hold on, you know what, one second. Mark, Mark, in interest of time, but I do want to address the question. Let, I, I'd like to conclu- formally conclude the class because we, we are a few minutes past, and then I'll stay here for questions. So in summation, in summation, what we've seen today is the different perspective of Jewish law. That Jewish law is not just about um, jumping in when people are hurting others. Jewish law encourages us to go out of our way or to at least think about the well-being of the other and to be accommodating, certainly in cases where it doesn't cost us a penny, where it doesn't um, inconvenience us, where it's not affecting us negatively, we should want to be there for the other, to be cruel, to, to say, no, I don't want the other to benefit, even though it's not costing me anything. That is somewhat like Sodom, Sodom-like behavior. Again, not with property and squatters. Well, that's, a diff- that's an exception. But the rule is we should be more accommodating than less. And in this way, the Torah guides us on an ethical, moral uh, path toward good behavior and being good neighbors and good 
good citizens in this world. And thus coming full circle. I started the class by saying that every legal system is founded on values. So what are Jewish values? The law says that in a case where one benefits and the other one doesn't lose, it's a win-win. This one's enjoying it, this one's not losing, then we're fine, then we're good. Be accommodating. Don't be like Saddam. What does that tell us about Judaism? That Judaism wants us to be a mensch. Judaism wants us to go be a little bit beyond the letter of the law. I don't have to, but why not? Why shouldn't I if it's going to help someone else out? Even if it costs me, ideally I should. That's not mandated. That's extra, extra legal behavior. But certainly if it doesn't cost me a penny. So perhaps this week the lesson is smile. Doesn't cost you anything. Be nice. Like Blockbuster said, I said this in a recent class, be kind, rewind. Whatever that means to you in your life. Be kind. Be a good person. Be a mensch. It's the Jewish way. Thank you so much for joining me for lesson one of Beyond Right. Today was entitled, this class was Beyond Good Neighbors. Not just what's legally mandated. Beyond Good Neighbors means to be really good and to be a mensch. Next week, we talk about the place of rehabilitation, personal rehabilitation in the area of the law. To what extent does personal rehabilitation play a role in the legal system? Or should it be considered a strictly personal matter that the law will not take into account? In other words, whether a person is reformed, I say reformed, has rehabilitated themselves or not, should the law take that into consideration or not? Next week, we're gonna look at this through the unique lens of Jewish law and compare it and contrast it with US and secular law and come away with astounding conclusions. Trust me, you don't want to miss this. Again, thank you for joining me for lesson one. You guys were amazing, and I appreciate it. I'm going to stay on. I'm going to stay on and answer any questions that you might have. So feel free. If you, if you want to jump off, you can. If you want to stay on, you can. Yeah, Mark, we're starting with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is what I wanted to, wanted to say. Uh, or ask. How is it that the ignorance of, of the property owner allows what's essentially a squatter to take advantage of that ignorance. Uh, to take the person who, who's not in his house and somebody pulls in that driveway and then people in the neighborhood say, oh yeah, there's always a car in there whether they're, whether they're home or not. That decreases the value of the man's property even though he's totally ignorant of it. He's not saying it's okay for you to. The person is, the person is doing this taking advantage of the owner's ignorance. How could it be right to take advantage of an owner's ignorance? Excellent that's, question. That's the overall question. Excellent question. So I'll, I'll say this. If in any way it's harming the property or the value or whatever, then it's not a question. It can't be done. The only scenario in which the question even begins as to the allowance of such behavior is if it in no way is harming the owner or the property. In other words, the driveway is sitting there. It's not, again, liability aside, that's a really good point. And liability, you would have to deal with that, you know, some, some other way. But that aside, the concept of a vehicle pulling onto that driveway for a few hours one day or one night, if it doesn't do any harm, it's not going to cause any loss or any inconvenience to the homeowner, and they don't know about it. So here's a scenario. I'm going to use the, the Talmudic term, 
This guy is benefiting, in this case, Sarah, she's benefiting, because she has a parking space. And the other party is not incurring a loss. And Jewish law, based on Jewish value, says in that scenario, we call that a win-win. You're benefiting, you're not losing. Okay, maybe not win-win, but win, no loss. In a case of where there's a win and there's no loss, Jewish law says, we're good. This guy's winning. Sorry, this side, this person is, is benefiting. This one's not getting harmed. Perfect. So let it go. Let it be. That's why we don't charge past rent for the squatter. That's why the squatter, even though certainly the law wouldn't encourage the squatter to do so, it wouldn't necessarily be illegal. It's weird to say this, and it's like, I, I'm, you know, it, but it is what it is. It wouldn't necessarily be illegal for that to happen. I know trespassing... But conceptually, conceptually, trespassing is because, you know, rights, property rights. If we take a, a view from a different system, different system, and it's not that I can step all over you and destroy your life. This is not, not that. If it's that, then that's not okay. This is simply benefiting from something that is not causing any harm or any damage or any loss or any inconvenience to the other party. Jewish law says, that's okay. It's okay. The, the, the question that Rabbi Shimon Shkop answers is, so why when he finds out about it, the question is not in the first half. I know that was your question. The question is on the second half. Why when he finds out about it, why then does the guy have to leave? Why can't he still say, I'm not causing you a loss. Be a good person. Why can't he tell the other guy, be a mensch? Why can't the squatter tell the homeowner, be a mensch? And so Rabbi Shimon Shkop answers psychologically that if a homeowner knows that he can't decide what to do with his own property. He, he doesn't have control because a guy can tell him, or a guy is telling him, be a mensch. That's not ownership of a property. But that's only triggered with that awareness and that sense of loss. If he doesn't know about it, he hasn't lost anything. It's the moment that he finds out about it and he feels powerless to stop it. That's when he's lost something. Until then, he hasn't lost anything objectively. Because he's not, let, let's give an easier scenario. Let's say somebody owns land somewhere that they haven't developed, they haven't done anything with, and they're not planning on doing anything for another five years. They're not cutting the grass, they're not, nothing, it's just sitting there. And somebody moves in and is not harming, the, is not messing up the property. That's, the guy's not living there, the original, the owner's not living there, he's not renting it, he's not, nothing. This guy's moving in. Charge him rent? Why? For what? You didn't lose anything. He benefited. Win, no lose. It's, we're good. Be a mensch. Don't be like Saddam. You have to get something. I have to. Right? But if he finds out about it and says, you know what? I'm just not comfortable with this situation. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like you being there. It's my property. The guy has to leave. Why? Shouldn't he be a Shouldn't he be do, doing what's good and right? Sure, but that's only when there's no loss. Now there's a loss. Why? He's not living there. He's not. But he knows that he's lost control. He knows that he's not in full control. That's a loss, psychological loss. That's a loss. And therefore, if Shimon Shkup says, that's why you have to, that's why the guy gets bounced. That's why you evict the guy. Because until now, there was no loss. Now there's a loss. Now you're harming the guy. Now you're harming the owner. Now he's harmed. He's not going to rent it. He's not going to cut the grass. He's not going to say, he's not, 
but he's, he's getting bothered by this. You could say he shouldn't get bothered, sure, but it's no, as he said, it's normal for a homeowner to feel bothered when he loses control. It's not normal for a homeowner to say, I must have wood and I can't have glass. Why? That's not normal. That's something's up over there. But to tell someone that you have to be okay with a squatter, that's not normal. But we don't, we, but there's no objective loss before he finds out. The loss is only psychologically. The loss doesn't exist before he finds out. So I hope that distinction makes sense. It's a very subtle distinction, and we went through it very quickly. But I would encourage everyone to look up, just look into it, just look into that last text, because it's fascinating. Mike, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, there's two sides to this. One is that uh, you are encouraging the squatter uh, to, for the, to, to clandestinely appropriate someone else's property. Excellent. And on the property owner's side, you are imposing a duty on him to police his property. And I don't know that that is not tilted. I mean, that is not a fair outcome, I don't think. That, I, that, that I, troubles him. I personally agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, we would have to figure out. I don't have a good answer for you. It's a good question. And it's if what... The, yeah. If the occupation is open and notorious, that's a different issue. But just the fact that it's clandestine, right. it encourages the squatter to act in right. a deceitful way, in right. a secretive way. Right. That's not right. I'm with you. I'm with you. You <laughs> should know, you should know that there are other opinions. I cited the majority opinion. There are other opinions that say that no... The squatter's not allowed to. But once he's there, the guy can't collect back rent, right? And then he can evict him. But there is a majority of opinions that say that he is allowed to be there. Does that encourage him? Does that encourage furtive behavior and clandestine behavior? You're right. These are very good concerns. These are very good concerns. I, 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 yeah. Can I just take it a little further, what he just said? Sure, absolutely. Also, from the point of view of the trespasser, that they are in fact stealing, and why why should the homeowner be the one be the mensch, whereas somebody who is stealing your Wi-Fi is is actually thieving from you. Excellent. Somebody who is squatting on your land is stealing from you. Somebody who um, who is even driving who's parking in your driveway is in some way stealing from you. Excellent question. Um, yeah. So why, why are we only expecting the homeowner to be a mensch and not the trespasser? Excellent. It's almost like if I were to reframe, to, to reword your question, it's almost like we're saying, or, or the, the one who's taking the thing or squat, is saying you have an ob- to the other guy, you have an obligation to be a mensch, so I'm going to impose that on you. I'm going to force you to be a mensch to my benefit. That doesn't feel right, right? That's your question doesn't feel right to say to somebody, you have an empty driveway, you're supposed, the Torah says, Jewish law says, be a mensch, so therefore, I'm just going to park my car and you, sh- you should be a mensch about it. Um, correct. Correct. It doesn't feel right. And I would agree that it, 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 it just, it, it, but on the other hand, because there is the other hand, when looking at the homeowner, the guy with the Wi-Fi, the guy with the driveway, the guy with the property, Jewish law would say, if it's not hurting you, then, uh, then what's the problem, right? If it's not hurting you, what's the problem? Now, if it still is a problem, you can protest. But what's, what's the problem if it's not actually hurting you? The answer might be liability or I don't like trespassers. Okay, 
Fine. It's a valid, it's a valid protest. But essentially, the, the Torah's perspective, the Jewish perspective, begins with how can we encourage people to be more accommodating than less accommodating? And I understand that we, we are wired to think in terms of danger and protection. Oh, people are squatting, people are moving in. Well, it's, it's not, no one's safe. You're stealing Wi-Fi, now hacking into passwords and routers and, and, and driveway leads to other forms of you know, violations of, of property. I get it, I get it. And the Jewish system is coming from a different perspective. Uh, maybe assuming the best of people, and I understand what you're saying, if you would say that best of people, we're talking about a squatter here, but you know, kind of going with the, the bigger picture of how can, what's the playbook for being a mensch and being it's less about me and more about we. I don't know if that's a good line or not. But that's, that's a little bit of the, of the psychology or the value system behind it. Of course, in a situation where there is a clear violation of the law, a clear uh, infringement on someone's, um, on someone's uh, 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 it's clearly causing harm to someone, then, then of course that is, that is problematic. But in other cases, if it's really not causing any harm, then, uh, then Jewish law encourages something a little bit, a little bit else, a little bit differently. Anyway, I, I don't know if I satisfactorily answered the questions because I, I don't know that I have all the answers. I, I struggle with the same questions. I don't, I don't have a magical answer. But it, it, to me, what's important is to understand a framework, a perspective that's very vastly different than ours, and then start thinking about, okay, I'm not going to allow squatters on my property anytime soon, but how can I live a life that's a little bit more generous? a little bit more caring, a little bit more kind, a little bit more compassionate. Because I think that's the take, for me, that's the takeaway from this lesson. And yes, mom. I have two comments. One is, I find it very ironic that it's called being a mensch when actually what we're doing is being more godlike. Ah, good. Excellent, by right. Being more generous. Right, right, it's good. It's not being a mensch, it's being more like God. Right. God is the one who's generous to us, and we're being more godlike. Good, and good. Okay. Now right, one could say, wait, I want to elaborate on that, because that's a very powerful point, I think. One could say that we're the ultimate squatters. All of us are squatters. Exactly. That, I, w I wanted to say that, but then I was going to, but then the counter-argument is, we didn't ask to be created. God created us and put us here. God created but, the squatters. Okay, good. Right. Yeah. Both valid points. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't want to bring that one up because right. I went to the, I went further. Right. Now, the other thing is, I am so mad about Crocker because that man is being, the guy who's, at, the guy who put up the 40-foot fence around the guy in California. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was actually taking something away. He was, he was taking his heir and his, um, and his, his heir and his son and right. his everything. He was the actually causing who, harm, right? He was actually causing yeah, he was harm. Causing harm. To, to, so how could? How could his right to put up a fence on his own property take precedence over hurt over taking away somebody else's heir and and and, and son? Yeah. So I don't understand. So yeah. Maybe maybe Mr. Whatever his name was, Mr. Uh, I forgot what his young. young young yeah. young Mr. Young could su could sue Crocker for taking away. So my understand I haven't looked through the case, uh, the detailed case notes, but my understanding of, of that case is that 
Young did go after him in court, but the court ruled that if you have property and there's no limitation to what you can do on your property, you can build a big sukkah. You can build a 40-foot 40 40-foot 40 uh, thing, and that's it. We don't, we don't look at the other guy, and that's it. But look, today you couldn't do that. Today there are many laws, including literally spite fence. They're called spite fence laws. That, oh, that, that, that. Yeah, that preclude that from happening. Many states have those laws, literally those laws in the books. And other, of course, there are zoning laws that, that try to preempt that from happening based yes, on yeah. the size of the homes in the neighborhood. And the, but I will tell you that I, we didn't, there's so many cases that are similar that would be, how many people living in Miami that 40 years ago had an ocean view and no longer have an ocean view because they built hotels and high-rises you know, in between the ocean. I, it's, it's a fact. The Shul and Bell Harbor, right? Rabbi Lipsker Shul, Shul and Bell Harbor. 96th or something? Whatever, the Shul, the Shul and Bell Harbor, Rabbi Lipsker. I, I believe he, the Shul, he had, you know, it was like the second, whatever, it was like a, a tall, big building, relatively big building, but a synagogue building. And he had an office with a view of the ocean. Back in the day. Today, <laughs> there's, there's all these um, condominium, all these condo buildings that are between the shoal on one side of, uh, what's he on? Is he on Ocean Drive? Collins? I don't know. Whatever, between him and the actual, and the actual ocean. So, you know, I, I, do you, can you block that? Can you block that? You probably can't block that in, in, in U.S. Not probably. You can't block that in U.S. law because you're blocking someone else's. Because you're blocking someone. happens in yeah. Manhattan also. Right. Good point. Excellent. Right. And you're not going to say that, assuming that the zoning is kosher, the homeowner can't, the existing homeowner can't say, I lost my view. You lost your view. I'm sorry you lost your view. Jewish law encourages... Right? In the case where the guy's building and he's going to block the guy's window, so he encourages the guy to offer to put, a, put another window. Now, if it's higher than the other window, I don't know what you say, say at that point. That would be a problem. But if he's offering to put in a window, then, then you go with that because he's, he's trying to be accommodating. But these are real-life questions. I mean, like the, like, uh, you know, the question that was, uh, like the case about the, the, the little case about the, the garden and, and the mosquitoes. It's like the backyard of the mosquitoes. These are real cases of, of, of where one neighbor does something, where one party does something that, has harm, that, that causes harm in the other. So maybe today we don't have Crocker's 40-foot fences, uh, but, but you know what we do have? We have 40-story, or I don't know, 40, whatever, condos that are blocking someone else's ocean view. So go for, and that's legal, and that's legal. You should also do your homework. When you buy, let's say, a condominium yep. and there's empty land, you know what's coming up. Correct. Anyway. Right. Which is why it's not a surprise. Correct. Which is why you have less of a leg to stand on in that case. Um, yeah. Correct. Exactly. I, I have I have a whole story about my driveway and the neighbor. Well, we're <laughs> not going to... Bring it up. Yeah. By the way, the Shulambal Harbor is Collins Avenue in Surfside. Nine, at 96th and Collins. I'm looking at a map right now on my computer, and I'm seeing here how Collins Avenue, and there is, yeah, there are other, other um, buildings now across the street. Wow, he's very close, very close to the, to the ocean. But it developed across the street from him. 
There you, there you go. There goes the view. There goes the neighborhood. Anyway, great to see you all tonight. Um, any other questions, comments before we close out? Thank you once again to our core sponsors. Thank you very much. Thank you all of you for attending and being part of it. If you tried out tonight's class, I hope you'll sign on for the rest of it. Just go to the website and register for the entire course, or you can email me and we'll, we'll take care of it, and we'll send you a book, and you'll be all set. All right, and once again, if you didn't get a book and you need a book, let me know, and we'll hook you up with it. All right, take care. Lila Tov. See you soon, everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.